pray. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions. Do homage to this son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Holy Father, we are thankful that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you rule above and you see everything that is happening on our earth. You told us not to be fearful, that as we reach the end of the age, that these things would grow and multiply. But we are so grateful for our home in heaven that the worst that can happen to a believer in the Ukraine is to be absent from the body and to be present with you. We pray for each and every pastor, for churches across the Ukraine that have the gospel. Where so many in that nation only have a form of godliness, we pray that in this day there might be great boldness and great compassion and open doors of opportunity to preach Christ. You promise to meet the needs of your people, and though we can't directly help with the bank's closed, you will supply. You are sovereign. You are ruling in heaven above. We pray for the Great Commission here in our own nation that you've entrusted to the American church as you've entrusted to the church in every nation to take the gospel to all peoples. We are reminded of how fragile life is, how temporal it is, that while we may feed a hungry stomach, someone without Christ will spend an eternity apart from him. So Holy Father, we just ask in your mercy and in your grace that we would be obedient children, faithful to the call that you've laid on our lives. Speak to us from your word this morning. May the Spirit of God have his way. May he lift up Christ. And I ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah chapter 3. If you are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is the seventh of what I project to be 10 messages on this book. Now, I know there are many new people here each time, some listening, some on our other campuses. And so let me set the record of this historical event so you know where we are. And I know it's helpful to review, too, for our regular people, because I want to embed these details in your life. As we go through the book of Jonah, I want the book of Jonah to go through us, because it's the Word of God that's implanted in the heart that the Spirit of God uses to renew our thinking and to make us more like Christ. Now, if you remember, in outlining the book, there are two great commissions. In chapter 1 and verse 1, the first commission is given. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, we have the recommission of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, 
the second time. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we have his first commission to go preach to the Ninevites. And we studied how he disobeyed and he went in the opposite direction. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we have the commission of Jonah. He is called to go to Nineveh. He's supposed to go east. Instead, he goes west. He goes in the opposite direction. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he is God's prophetic instrument to preach the gospel, but he also recognizes that there's also a prophecy given by some of his contemporaries that will remind us that the Ninevites will become God's prophetic instrument to bring judgment on disobedient and idolatrous Israel, and he certainly doesn't want that. So he thinks if he can remove himself from the presence of God and get himself far enough away that he won't be able to accomplish the mission. And so if you remember, God hurls a great storm on the sea. The sailors are frantic. They fight against the storm. Finally, they take lots. The lot falls providentially on Jonah. They don't know what to do. And then they decide to throw him overboard. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you are running from God this morning and you really know the Lord, you will meet God in his chastisement. And so the prodigal prophet of chapter one becomes the praying prophet in chapter two. He's in the belly of the great fish. And if you look at chapter two and verse nine, you will read, he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He's not going to get relief until he purposes in his heart to keep the vow that he had made when God called him as a prophet. And so that great fish couldn't stomach him any longer. And again, in God's providence, he threw him up. And so we read in verse 10 of chapter 2, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God would not allow him out until he kept his vow. And God will not remove his hand of chastisement over you if you have been called and vowed to do something specific, but you have chosen to disobey. And so the praying prophet in chapter 3 becomes the preaching prophet. So again, the big scope of the book, two commissions, one and two, the first commission, three and four, the recommission. And then I gave you four chapter titles. In chapter one, he's the prodigal prophet. He said, I won't go. He is running away from God. In chapter two, he's the praying prophet. He's running towards God. And he's basically saying in the belly of the great fish, I will go. In chapter three, he is the preaching prophet. He's running for the Lord. And he, in essence, is saying by his life, I am here. And then when we come to chapter four in our next encounter, we will see that he is the pouting prophet He's running ahead of God, and he's basically saying, I wish I hadn't come. Now, last time we delved into the first four verses. I'm going to start there for context, and we hope, God willing, to go through verse 10. Follow along. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the, Lord, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, the greatest revival in the history of man to date took place in the most unlikely place on the globe. It was not in Scotland through John Knox or through G. Campbell Morgan or F.B. Meyer, not in England. It certainly wasn't in Switzerland through Calvin. It wasn't in America through the first and second great awakening. The first and greatest revival that took place where the whole place was converted took place in Iraq, not far from Baghdad, where many of you have been, in a place called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is 153 miles northwest of Baghdad. A number of our Marines have been there. And when you think of Jonah, we don't typically think of him as an evangelist. Most people just think of him as the prophet who was swallowed by a great fish. But God used him unlike any evangelist in the history of the world. And so here's a man who has a phenomenal impact. And if you remember, I gave you three words to summarize each chapter. If you've been following here with us in this series, you have three words written out in the margin of chapter one. You have three words written out in the margin of chapter two. And then last time, if you were here, I gave you three words to put out in the margin of chapter three. And we'll do the same when we come to the fourth chapter. Again, I want you to think your way through the whole book. Because if you understand a book of the Bible, it becomes a tool, not just in your life, but to help other people and to disciple others. Next to verses one and two, you should have the word, the recommission. The recommission, and that God recommissions Jonah to preach. Then next to verses three and four, you should have the response. You wrote that word response because what we find here is the response of Jonah to preach. And then next to verses five through 10, you should have the word result because what we find in this section that we're going to examine today is the results of this man's preaching. Now, we began last time by looking at the recommissioning of Jonah to preach because God is the God of the second chance. And so the chapter opens, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Sometimes this chapter is called the God of the second chance, but I hope you understand that God does not give second chances in relation to salvation. Jesus plainly said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, the Messiah, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the writer of the Hebrews says, is that appointed for a man to die once, to die once, and then the judgment. 
You die and then you don't experience reincarnation. You don't experience a second chance at salvation where someone comes to you in Hades and preaches the gospel to you as Clark Pinnock, a so-called Christian evangelist said. No, it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. There's no second chance in terms of salvation, but God is the God of the second chance in terms of service. Now, if you've read and studied the book of Hebrews, and you know it well, there are six warning passages in the book. And one of the underlying themes in Hebrews is that if you put God off long enough, you'll lose your second chance. God can shelve you if you ignore his grace, his prodding through his chastisement. But Jonah, he stops fleeing, he repents. And so we read in the opening verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now I want you to see his response as it's unfolded here in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now what a difference between the first commission and the second commission. In chapter one and verse one, but Jonah rose up to flee. But now in chapter three and verse one, so Jonah arose and went. No argument, no hesitation, no him hawing. He had paid the price of God's chastising hand and he was in full obedience. Now, wouldn't it have been easier for him to have done that the first time? Of course it would. You say, was God inconvenienced? God is never inconvenienced. God doesn't need anything. People talk about God needs our help. God doesn't need our help. That's misrepresenting the living God. God is totally complete in himself. He needs nothing. When we are disobedient, God is not inconvenienced. We are inconvenienced. And so in verse 2, we studied arise, go to Nineveh. Notice how it's described in verse 2, the great city. And here in verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And if you were here last week, we saw how archaeology has shed quite a bit of light on the greatness of this city. There was an inner wall, there was an outer wall. The inner wall ran two and a half miles along the Tigris River and then another eight miles around the perimeter of the city. And outside of that inner wall, there was an outer wall that was 75 miles in circumference. It was wide enough for three chariots to ride across its top side by side. It was 50 feet high and 40 feet wide. And between these two walls, you have Nineveh and greater Nineveh. And some of you run out in your margin, and I know some of you are new here and you don't have a Bible, and that's okay, I get it. You've never needed one before when you come to church. You need one here. And if you don't have one, and half of our visitors who come don't own a Bible, come to meet the pastor and you'll get a a very nice new Bible. But you should have written out in the margin Genesis 10, 11, and 12 that describes Nineveh metroplex. In either case, in verse 4, it says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, as we noted last week, one day's walk in the ancient world was about 20 miles. You walked about 10 miles in the morning, in the midday, in the heat of the day, you didn't walk at all, and then you walked another 10 miles in the afternoon. 
So get the picture here. He's about a third of the way through the city when he starts preaching. Now remember, this is a wicked, violent group of people as the archaeological record unfolded, and I gave you pictures of actual writings on their gates, some of their artwork, and not to mention some of the writings that have survived, not to mention the prophet Nahum, who comes a hundred years later, and he describes how they returned back to their wickedness. So he comes into the city, and he begins to preach, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, his heartbeat had to pick up a little bit. I mean, it was a terrifying message for the people to hear. People say, well, it seems like God is angry with Nineveh. Yes, he is. God is always disturbed by sin. Now, God is all-powerful. He could have certainly wiped these 600,000 people off the map in an instant. But God is long-suffering. God told Abraham that he would wait until the fullness of iniquity had come into the promised land. And then they would go and take it over. The 400 years was not accidental. God is all-powerful. He could have just obliterated the 600,000 people off the map of Nineveh. But God is gracious. And it's an expression of grace when God brings a message of judgment. Because if you know your Bible throughout Scripture, when judgment comes, it's a warning to flee to the mercy and grace of God Almighty. When I went into the ministry in 1978, 86% of Americans believed that hell was a real place. Now, amongst millennials, only 54% believe that hell is real. And the lower you go, Generation X, Generation Z, it gets smaller and smaller. And sadly, in evangelicalism, the doctrine of eternal retribution in hell has virtually disappeared. Why won't pastors preach it? Well, because it's not culturally relevant. Well, it's relevant to God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As I told you last time, if we had a little more hell in the pulpit, we'd have a whole lot less hell in our nation today. And so having examined his recommissioning and his response, we want to give our attention this morning to the results of Jonah's preaching. A revival takes place, or maybe in more technical terms or in an awakening, but I'll use the popular use of the term revival. Typically, the word revival is used to describe when God's people are shaken up and get their hearts right, and awakening is used in reference to the lost being saved. But it can be used both ways. I don't want to get too semantical, so don't come up to me after and try to delineate the difference, all right? So I want to give you four marks of this revival of this awakening. Number one, the means to this revival. Let's think about the means to this revival. Look, if you will, at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, there's a lot of confusion in our day about what it really means when the text says they believed in God. And as you read through it, it says, because they repented, God relented. God changed his mind. So what did they really believe? Just in God's existence? No, that little word in is critical to the whole verse. James 2 says the demons believe and tremble. 
People all the time will say, well, I believe there's a God. Well, of course they do. Everyone does. I know you'll meet people on occasion who will argue that they are agnostic, that they are atheistic, but they're not. They're lying to themselves. There are no atheists in the world. There's a lot of foolish apologetics in our day that's trying to defend the existence of God. I follow God's example in Scripture. He devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And so when I meet someone who says they're atheistic, I'll say, well, you're really not. Let me tell you why. And if that's not good enough, okay, I'm not going to waste my breath. You don't cast your pearl before swine. There's a time to walk away. How do we know that every man believes there's a God. Well, Paul argues, if you remember Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. How so? Being understood through what has been made or created so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they knew that God existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's a sense in which all men know that there's a God. They know it, one, through the creation around them, but two, through the conscience within. And so when you come to Romans 2, for when Gentiles, and here the word Gentile is being used not to describe a, a non-Jew, but basically a raw pagan, for when pagans, you could say, who do not have the law, meaning they don't have a Bible, they've never seen the Ten Commandments, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. How so? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So not only has God written his word here in printed pages, he's written it here in the human heart. So that people who've never seen the Bible instinctively know the moral law of God and that their conscience either defends them or accuses them. Who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them. So the God who made them has revealed himself to them. And in that sense, they know God. But please understand that is very different from the terms of the new covenant where the scripture says we can know God. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 31. He writes, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of, Ju with the house of Judah. Now, if you know Jeremiah the prophet, he's looking down the corridors of time to what contextually he has just referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the Great Tribulation Period. And while we are reading this morning the single biggest revival in the history of the world to date, the greatest revival is still in the future. And it will happen through the Jewish people in the land of Israel where they are converted and then they become God's spokesmen to people across the world. And so through the two witnesses, through an eternal angel, through those people they convert, through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the gospel goes out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It will happen during the tribulation period. And when it happens, the scripture teaches then the end will come, then the second coming will happen. So the Jews today are not recipients in a real life-changing way of the new covenant, except those completed Jews 
who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, but most of the Jewish people are in unbelief. So the church is removed. It's called the rapture, the catching up of the church. And that seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation unfolds. And in a powerful way, people hear the gospel across the planet. Now, with that said, the writer of the Hebrews in the eighth chapter quotes Jeremiah 31 as saying that it can be fulfilled amongst believers today. Now, that does not mean God is done with Israel. In fact, right after you read this portion of Scripture, Jeremiah the prophet will say, this covenant, this new covenant that I am making with Israel is going to be kept. In fact, as long as the sun is in the skies, the moon and the stars are up there, that's how long I will be committed and faithful to Israel. And this is important because sadly, those in the reformed camp of theology have obliterated Israel. They have said that the church has replaced Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. God is not done with the Jewish people. And so we're living in a lot of uh, ignorance when it comes to basic Bible prophecy. Someone asked yesterday, do you think this could be World War III? I don't know. None of us know. It could be. But let's say for the sake of argument, World War III unfolds in the next few weeks. Would it be different from World War I and World War II? Absolutely. Why? Because Israel's in the land. They weren't in the land during the First and Second World Wars. They are in the land. They became a nation just as God prophesied in a single day, and he's been gathering them from the four corners of the world. So I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's describing a personal relationship with the Lord, an internal relationship with the Lord. And so he further says, they will not teach again each man his brother and each man his, uh, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Look, that's only possible when you're born from above, when you're born again. Here's how Jesus described the new covenant, and John 17 in his high priestly prayer. This is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's talking about knowing God personally, not just knowing that God exists, but knowing God in a real life-changing way. And that happens when you repent and believe. Jesus made this statement in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. At the ascension, he made this statement in Luke 24. He told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, takes the Tanakh, reveals from their Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. They're pierced to the heart. They say, brethren, what must we do? And in one word, he says, repent. Now, let me just say parenthetically, 
It's possible to preach the Bible and to preach the gospel of salvation without ever using the word repentance. You say, Pastor Carl, that sounds like double talk to me. Think your way through this very carefully. While every book of the Bible in some way teaches and preaches the work of Christ, there is one book in particular in the New Testament whom we are told its objective was to give us the plan of salvation. John will write in John 20, 30, so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But then he adds, these have been written, these seven miracles, five that are unique to John's gospel prior to the resurrection, I've written what I've written, the works and words of Jesus Christ. Why? So that, here's the reason, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why he writes this gospel, so people could be saved, and yet the word repent does not appear once in the gospel of John. In fact, I would submit to any pastor that if you cannot preach the plan of salvation without using the word repentance, then you're probably misrepresenting the gospel. And so some in our Reformed faith, they front load the gospel, almost making repentance a work, like it's something that you do before salvation in order to believe, and it is not. Again, brethren, what shall we do? And in one word, Peter said, repent. What were they to repent of? It all is determined by context. In that context, the Hebrew people said, Jesus is just a man. Not only is he a man, he is a blasphemer. He deserves to be executed. And they learn from the scripture, no, he's the promised one. It rings true to their life because the word of God is living and sharper and active than a two-edged sword. What will we do? Change your mind. Metaneo, that's what the word repent in both Hebrew and Greek means, to change your mind. But understand, you can be convicted by the Spirit of God without necessarily being converted by the Spirit of God. And there are many examples. Think your way through this for just a second. There is Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24. Paul has the opportunity to share God's love and forgiveness to him. And we're told in Acts 24, 25, and as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Now, here's a man who was under deep conviction, but his history records he rejected Jesus. He was under conviction but he wasn't converted, he didn't repent. You can come under conviction without having genuine repentance. For that matter, you can experience confession of sin without genuine repentance. Do you remember the great Pharaoh of Egypt? Plague after plague came, the plague of blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of insects, the plague on the cattle, the boils. And then finally in Exodus 9.27 we're told, he says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. You can have confession without repentance. For that matter, you can have crying without repentance. Think about Esau. He had a great lust for food, and his lust for the things of the flesh superseded his love for God. 
And we're told in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, that in the body of Christ in the church, there is to be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Crying in tears do not necessarily mean genuine repentance. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry for your sin. The word repent is not a feeling word. It's a willful word. Now, there may be feelings involved. So Paul, in describing believers who have been regenerated by the Spirit already, can refer to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But you can feel sorry like the rich young ruler, but he didn't repent. He failed to change his mind. So Jesus told the people of his day to change their mind, that if they would not repent, they too would perish. In fact, it's an important word. The first word recorded out of the mouth of Jesus is the word repent. Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So you ask, is repentance something we do before we come to the Lord? Well, yes and no, and that repentance does not describe some work that we must do and therefore soil the grace of God. But indeed, when you believe, you have genuinely repented. If you are in California and I ask you to come to South Carolina, I don't really need to say, well, leave California to come to South Carolina. All I need to do is say, come to South Carolina, and if you come to South Carolina, then you leave California. And when you come to Christ, you're coming to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. You're willing to acknowledge that your sin is wrong, that it needs to be forgiven. And so you have changed your mind. When you come to Christ, you repent. So as you read John's gospel, he never once uses the word repent, but he preaches what Christ had commanded him and all the apostles to do, to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And by the way, he couches each and every illustration. He does it in a way without front-loading the gospel and making repentance a work. Look, a man who is in sin is dead in his sin. Jesus said the man who sins becomes a slave to his own sin. You can't clean up your life to come to Jesus Christ. But when you come to Jesus Christ, he will indeed clean up your life. Now back here in Jonah 3 and verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Circle that word in. Because if that word in were not here, there would be no salvation. There are some people who believe about God, who, who believe about Christ, but they don't believe in God. They don't believe in Christ. They know God like most of us know the President of the United States. We all know who the president is. Most of us have a lot of information about the president. We may have different opinions on our president. We're still called, by the way, to pray for our president. And I hope you're doing that earnestly in these days. But maybe none of us personally here know the president. A lot of people know God the way I know the president. And so in Acts 17, God makes it very clear what the content of faith is. Listen to these words. The apostle Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere repent. Why? 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So God asks us to change our mind concerning Jesus, to trust him who died on our behalf, who was raised from the dead, declaring him as sinless, declaring him to be Lord. Now, I'm sure Jonah didn't know that this mass revival was going to take place when he went and preached in Nineveh. His message was simple. He had 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown. Would they laugh at him? Would they mock him? Would they turn against him? Would they persecute him? Would they execute him? He doesn't really know. But the fact of the matter is, is when he starts preaching, the people stop and they listen. And God brings great conviction across the whole city. Then the people of Nineveh, in response to the message, then the people believed in God. You ask, well, what specifically did they believe in light of what we just read from Paul in Acts 17? The same thing you and I believe, that God is the provider of salvation. I hope you understand that when you get to heaven, there won't be people in the Old Testament era who were saved by human merit, by obedience to the law, and that the rest of us were saved by believing in Jesus. God has only had one way of salvation through all of time. Now understand, five words in the Hebrew text, eight words in our English Bibles, yet 40 years and Nineveh will be overthrown. Was that all he preached? No. You say, how do you know? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. God gave us divine commentary on the Old Testament prophets. Listen to these words in Acts 10. Peter says in Acts 10, 43, of him, he's speaking of Jesus, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Jonah's a prophet. What did all the prophets preach? What did all the prophets bear witness of? The Messiah. Now, did Jonah know that the Messiah's name would be Yeshua? Of course not. He didn't know his name would be Jesus. But he bore witness of the coming Messiah. In addition, Jesus tells us in Luke 11, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus taught, if you were here several weeks ago, that Jonah was A, assigned to the wicked and idolatrous and adulterous generation that um, uh, Jesus encountered as he did miracles on the earth. But in addition, he himself was a sign. Jesus made this statement, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which tells us that Jonah preached more than five words because like all the prophets, he bore witness of Jesus, of his death, burial, and resurrection. See, the only difference was they're looking forward, and certainly there were some who had a fuller revelation of the truth of God. But who is the first prophet in Scripture? Abel. Abel's the first prophet in Scripture. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells us that. You don't know that from the Old Testament. But Jesus indicted the religious leaders of his day with the blood of all the prophets from Abel to the last prophet, Zechariah. 
And we're all told in the book of Hebrews that he came on the basis of faith. You know, liberal German theology of the 19th century said, and so many foolish American evangelicals have bought it, that the difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice is that Abel brought his best and Cain brought less than his best. Hey, you don't know that Cain brought less than his best. He could have brought the finest of his garden. But one, we're told, and the writer of the Hebrews came on the basis of faith. He came on the basis of what God had revealed. Faith is always based on Scripture. Faith comes through the Word of God. And what had God revealed? God had revealed to Adam and Eve, his parents, and even possibly by direct revelation to Abel, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so he made them coats of skin. And so Abel, based on revealed truth, comes with blood because he recognizes that sin deserves death. And that blood was a foreshadowing of the precious sinless blood of Christ that would someday be shed. Now, there's the means to this revival. Secondly, let's think further about the extent the extent of this revival. Again, we read here in verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, we're told specifically from the greatest to the least of them, they called a fast, they put on sackcloth. sackcloth. Verse six says they sat on ashes. Sackcloth is roughly like burlap. That would be the closest parallel. It's a scratchy garment. They put on sackcloth and they sat on ashes. And that's what people typically did to express outwardly what was going on inwardly in their hearts, that they were turning from sin. So fasting and wearing sackcloth and sitting on ashes was an object lesson declaring their bankruptcy and their need for forgiveness. Now, they were not saved by that. They were saved by believing in God, but outward works always show inward reality. And we see the same truth in the New Testament. Listen to these words in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Most of you know what grace is. Paul says in Romans eleven six, if it, your salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Grace is for God so loved the world he gave his son. Did God have any obligations? Did God have any debts to pay? Absolutely not. He didn't have to send his son to die on that cross. That was grace, but just because he died for all doesn't mean all are saved. You have to believe in him. You have to come through faith, which is described as something that's not of yourself. It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. You don't earn gifts. You receive them. It's not as a result of works. It's not a reward for anything you've done so that no one can boast or brag. He couldn't have said it more plainly. But listen to the next verse. We miss the next verse. When you memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and the most 100 passages you'll be getting here shortly that you should memorize, I have Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. <laughs> For we are his workmanship, poema, we get our word poetry, we're his workmanship, his poetry, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for good works, onto good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So as you're a spirit-filled believer and you obey what you know, God unfolds his plan for your life and you discover the very best that he has. 
So here's a major city, Nineveh. It's the capital of Assyria. It's steeped in wickedness. And yet there's a 100% conversion rate. The people from every social stratum, from the greatest of them to the least, are represented. So picture it in these terms. You are in the belly of a great fish. And as this map shows, you are spit out on Fripp Island, all right? And you have a three days walk from Fripp to Hilton Head, it's 60 miles. And you begin to preach when you reach one third of the way into your journey. You're on Bay Street of all places, if you were here 30 years ago. Yet 40 days in Beaufort County will be destroyed. And you get no further than that And the message begins to spread like wildfire across the county, and all 201,863 residents are converted, from the greatest to the least. You say no preacher could accomplish that. That's humanly impossible. That's right. Only God could do that. And that's why this is a miracle. Even Jonah could not have imagined this kind of conversion rate. Listen, there's a lesson here for us, and that is do not disobey God if it doesn't make sense to you. If God has given a clear word from his book, we would be wise to obey it, whether we understand it or not. When I started tithing as a new Christian, it made no sense The promise that if I gave 10% to the Lord, that he was going to multiply the other nine-tenths. But when you obey what you know, even if it doesn't make sense, that's what it means to walk by faith, you see God's hand. And one of the lessons of this book is when you obey the will of God you do know, God begins to unfold the will of God that you do not know, and you discover that God's plan may be far bigger than your analysis of that plan. Okay, so there's the means to the revival. Secondly, there's the extent of the revival. Third, let's think further about the method for this revival. The method for this revival. How is it that a whole city was converted to faith in the Lord? For that matter, how can an individual today be converted to faith in Christ? We'll go back and notice what God said to Jonah here in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. You underscored last week the word proclaim and the words the proclamation. God is saying proclaim my message, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. His commission is like ours. We are to preach God's word, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, because the Bible is what changes lives. And so as we discussed last time, the challenge in the evangelical pulpit is not the inerrancy of the Bible, it's the sufficiency of Scripture. And we have lost that, and it's leading the church into apostasy, and it could potentially become total apostasy. Now, I don't know that we're going to be able to stop that or arrest that because there is coming a day when there is going to be total apostasy and the seeds are being sown in our day. 
But I know what this preacher is going to do, no matter what other preachers do, as long as God gives me health and mental acuity to preach the Word of God, I'm going to preach nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I'm going to preach it in season and out of season because His Word is sufficient and it's the power of God to change lives. Listen to the promise that Isaiah makes. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the water, so will my word be that comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word of God is the seed that God used in Nineveh to convert the Ninevites, and it's the seed that God will use in this day to change lives. Hold your finger here in Jonah and go to 1 Peter. All right, find the revelation and scan backward. Remember Peter, James, and John, the inner circle? Well, those three are clustered together at the end of the Bible, but not in that order. James, Peter, first and second, John, first, second, third, John, all right? Now, the sad fact is that in evangelical denominations and organizations, at least for the last 30 plus years that have been surveyed, it tells me that 95%, all the surveys done, hasn't changed in 30 years, 95% of born again, really blood-bought children of God have never personally introduced someone to Christ. That's pretty sad. And part of that I think it's because we don't really understand what Peter is saying. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 22. He said, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, the connection between verses 22 and 23 is established with that little three-letter word, for. Do you see it? You might want to circle it. He's reminding us that we are to fervently love one another. I am to fervently love you. You are to fervently love me. Why? Because, here's the reason, we have the same Father. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you become a child of God, that means you were not a child of God beforehand. And Peter is reminding us that in the spiritual realm, the same seed that conceived me conceived you, making us children of God. Now, there's only one way to see the inside of heaven. You must be born again. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not see the kingdom of God. And just as you were conceived in your mother's womb with human seed, even so, if you're going to be saved, you must be conceived with spiritual seed. Now, in the physical realm, you and I were conceived with perishable seed. My father is dead, my father's father is dead, his father is dead. I come from a long line of perishable seed, and someday if Jesus doesn't come back first, I too will die. 
But there's a part of me that has been conceived with imperishable seed that gave me the gift of eternal life that will never pass away. James said it this way. That was the last book we studied. Do you remember? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So just as in physical birth, there are two parents, there are two parents in spiritual birth. Follow with me now. On the one hand, you are born again by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, you are born again by the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion. And the degree to which you believe that will be the degree to which you use Scripture. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There have been countless occasions where I've encountered someone and you can just tell they're not getting, it's not clicking. I've just taken the scripture there in my office and I've read more scripture. And it's like the blinders came off. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Every once in a while someone says, well, I want to live my life in such a way so that people can see their need to be saved. That's not how they're going to be saved. Now, you through your testimony, maybe you can share how God answered prayer, something he's done for you, how he's blessed you. That may give you a platform, but your life can convert no one. The word of God brought together by the spirit of God is what brings about supernatural conception. And that has been true in every age. No one has ever been made right with God apart from Scripture. Even before the first verse of Scripture was penned by Moses, God spoke through dreams and visions in many portions and in many ways. And so Abel, who's the first prophet, preached the revelation that God had already given. And so he preached the need to be made right in faith. And so Peter continues. He quotes Isaiah. Notice, for all flesh is like grass... In all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Everything in it has the seeds of decay. You bring your wife some beautiful flowers, within a few days they're dead. But God's word is incorruptible, imperishable seed. And so the psalmist says, forever, O Lord, your word word is, is severed in heaven. Now, people have made fun of it. They've scorned it. They've mocked it. They've tried to distort it. They're making in these United States of America laws against the scripture. But it is still the imperishable, incorruptible word of God. Diocletian, the famous Roman emperor who hated Christians, who hated the Bible, sought to gather every scroll and piece of papyri in the empire. There are no codexes books then. It was all in scrolls and papyri. And to have the Bible burned. And when he had thought he had burned the last scroll, he erected a monument with these words, the name of Christ is extinguished. Anyone have a Bible here today? Hold it up high. I think old Diocletian was wrong, don't you? They can make laws against it. People can ridicule it. Cults try to add to it. Liberals twist the word of God to their own destruction. The humanists of our day are ignoring it. But it is nonetheless the incorruptible, imperishable word of God. And when you're convinced of that, 
As you speak to people about the Lord, you will be quick to use Holy Scripture in that process, for it is God's divine seed. You know why some of us have never seen anyone to come to know Christ? As we think our testimony has some power in it. It has no power but to give you a platform. People aren't converted by your testimony. Or you have been convinced by the evil one because of the evil in our day that people just aren't interested anymore. There are people every week who come here who are looking for answers. We just saw a young woman come down front in the last service. She came to meet the pastor, still trying to process it, clearly not a believer, called for an appointment, spent an hour with her on the phone. She received Christ as Lord. People are interested. People are interested. Now, think about the disciples. What was their perception of the Samaritans? Listen to what Jesus said. Do not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. The disciples needed spiritual vision. They needed eyes to see that the fields were white onto harvest. Remember, they went into town to get food. They had to cross paths with the Samaritan woman along the way. And when they were in town collecting food, they didn't share the gospel with those people. They come back. She's marvelously converted. She goes back, brings the whole town. And then even apart from her testimony, people were saved. And Jesus said, already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he that sows, in this case, John the Baptist, who had been preaching the gospel in this area, he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Look, you may sow seed and someone else may come alongside through your faithfulness to sow a truth of the word of God that's imperishable seed and they later, later harvest it. But you are to be faithful in this process that God has called us to. Now think about old Nineveh. Think about the man on the ship. Nobody, nobody on the ship could be converted with Jonah down in the hold of that ship. It's not until we take the seed and we, be, we begin to sow it that it can have its influence. Now back here, Jonah 1 verse 2. He was told, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. God told Jonah what Jesus told us. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We are to preach like Jonah did, the coming work of the Messiah for us, the past work, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Jesus said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he adds, you are witnesses of these things to 500 people standing on that hilltop. That's what Jonah did. He witnessed, he preached. That's what we are to do. Okay, very quickly. Now the effects from the revival. We've talked about the extent of the revival, namely everyone in Nineveh. We've examined the means to it, faith in Christ, belief in the living God. We spoke about the method for it, the sowing, the sharing, the preaching of God's seed. Fourth and finally, the effects, the effects from this revival. I want you to notice here that there's a group of people who are totally changed. Because the people in Nineveh believe in God, again at the end of verse five, they called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
when the, Lord, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and put on the ashes. I mean, we're talking here about some serious repentance. The word spread to every quarter of greater Nineveh, and these outward symbols were inward realities of what had transpired in their heart. And that's the power of the word. It reaches the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, royalty, and the commoner. It reminds me of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord after he saved, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, please note, a changed life results from a changed heart. The changed life is not the means to salvation, it's the result of salvation. That's why Jesus can say in Luke's gospel, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Or in Matthew's gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship. I I, I never knew you through a second birth. And so we've got all these born-agains running around today. And they're going out and getting high on weekends on dope and alcohol until their brains are buzzed. They're sleeping with people in the churches. And they're saying, well, I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. I'm not talking about perfection here. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Don't ever think that you could never commit some sin. But God is speaking of a new direction, of a new practice. And he will say to those, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Now, please notice these people are changed. Verse 7, he issued the king a proclamation, and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. So the king's remorse leads him and his nobles to write a decree, a total fast, neither food nor water. In fact, it is so profound, he asked, even put it on the cattle. I mean, he just wanted the whole culture to to shout, even the animals, we repent, Lord, we really mean it. Who knows, verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The fear of judgment, by the way, is a mark of conversion. These Assyrians were a cruel and vicious people as we've studied. They were just violent beyond violent. You say, well, how do we know this is genuine? Maybe it's just superficial. I mean, think about King Ahab for a second. Remember Ahab, 1 Kings 21? He ripped off one of the men in his kingdom and stole his vineyard. 
And it came about when Ahab heard these words of warning from Elijah, that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. You know, his wife was infuriated. Man, what are you doing, Ahab? What are you doing with that sackcloth on? Why are you in ashes? We may have ripped off, but look, we don't want everyone to know about it. And then we read, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Now, people might read that and say, God, what, what you doing, man? You going soft? Why don't you just zap him? God's not like some politician who makes a promise and then as soon as he's elected, he reneges on it. God never changes. Why does he give Ahab any slack? Well, understand there's a difference between temporal judgment and eternal judgment. And God saw how Ahab had humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes. And so God postponed the judgment that would come on Ahab. But sadly, as best we know, he died as a lost man and came under God's eternal wrath. We don't know that for sure, but there's no record that he was converted. But you see, what Ahab did is not all that different from what Jesus described in the parable of the sower. Do you remember in Luke 8, 13, he describes different responses to the word of God, the seed that is sown, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Ahab was like that. He took a step towards God. There are people like that. They come to the church. They get all excited, come down front. You can only go by what they say. I don't know. Salvation by grace. Yeah, I believe. They believe for a while, but it's here and not here. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And they fall away. They were never really, truly, genuinely saved. You say, well, how do we know these Ninevites said it was not just superficial? Because of the fruit of it. For decades, these were a changed people. And it's not until a hundred years later when the prophet Nahum comes along where the children had repented of their grandparents' repentance, and then God brought the judgment. We read in verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. By the way, it comes up on the Bible line on occasion because there's a number of places where it says God repented or God relented. And the question is, well, if God knows everything, how does God change his mind? Well, understand that in the truest sense, God does not change his mind. God was not caught by surprise, but very often in Scripture, the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms, anthropos, man, where God uses human terms to describe his divine character. So we say, well, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Or we say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. 
We know that God does not have a literal arm. We know that God does not have literal eyes because God is spirit. Until, of course, God the Son incarnated himself, and one member of the Godhead has literal eyes, but he's not restricted by those. He's still omnipresent and omniscient. And so God is using human terms to help us to understand his compassion towards these people. Now understand, when it says here that God relented, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's the word nakam. And it's a Hebrew word that describes relent with pain on the inside. You say God experienced pain on the inside? Yes, he did. How so? Paul unfolds it for us in the book of Romans. That God in his forbearance, dealing with Old Testament sins, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God was waiting patiently. He was being forbearing. The new New American Standard speaks of God's merciful restraint. God temporarily held this judgment. God can't just indiscriminately forgive sin any more than a judge can say, I I forgive you, you're free to go for your murder. Justice must be satisfied. But justice and mercy and love met on a cross And so God in his patience and his mercy was looking forward to that time when his son would come. Listen, when Adam sinned, God could have immediately destroyed the human race and by extension you and me because in Adam was the whole human race such that when Adam sinned, all sinned, Romans 5, 12. But God in his forbearance and his patience was looking towards the cross and what the Lord Jesus would accomplish for us. How are we going to apply this? Let me make a couple of applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this portion of Scripture that you can legislate morality, but it's better to have conversion. You can legislate morality, but it's far better to have conversion. Did you notice how conversion had changed the whole political environment? The violence did not get removed by passing some law, by more police, by arms. Police and arms cannot remove the violence. They can only keep it in check. Obviously, we make laws because of the depravity of man. Obviously, we need police. It's total upside-down, depraved thinking to think that we should defund the police, to take away the very sword that is God's instrument to curb evil. We need a movement to refund the police. But people's hearts are not fundamentally changed by the passing of a law. People's lives are changed through the gospel, so we must always keep first things first. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1? He said, but we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. The law is good, Paul says, providing it is used lawfully. And so what's the fundamental purpose of the law? Well, notice, realizing the fact that law, and now he's describing man's law, and so when there's usually a back and forth, the NAS will put the word law in lowercase, Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
Paul is simply arguing that the very nature of law itself is designed for those whose natural tendency is to want to break it. That's why we have laws. If everyone obeyed the speed limit, there would be no need for speed limit laws with enforcement. If uh, people didn't rip off each other, we wouldn't have to have boundaries and fences to delineate our property lines. There would be no need for marriage laws if people didn't get divorced. There would be no need for race relation laws if people treated each other respectfully. No, the, the purpose of the law is for the lawless. I don't, need, I don't need a law that will say, Carl, don't murder your parents, because I loved my parents. I don't need a law that would say, don't engage in homosexual behavior, because I have a new nature that says that's reprehensible. The law is for the lawless. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a need for God's standards. Paul underscores it in the book of Romans for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. That is, you cannot be saved by the obedience to God's law because your sinful nature fails in keeping it. What it couldn't do, God did. How? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Why did he do it? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's what the new birth does. It changes everything. It gives a new direction. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away and everything has become new. And so while I am in favor of obviously upholding legal standards in our own state, in our own nation, in fact, every time we do that, we're just reminding people of God's standard and God's law as a school teacher to lead people to faith in Christ. That's a good thing. But do I think that's the solution? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Some law is not going to change anything. It will only curb evil. But to fundamentally change a person, they must be born from above. Let's keep first things first. And we have forgotten where we have come from as a nation. Much of what we've enjoyed in these United States of America is not because everyone was a born-again Christian, that all our founding fathers were passionately saved and walking with Christ, but a lot of them were. And the very documents on which this nation was founded was a reflection of biblical truth. But we've forgotten God. We, we think everything's fine. It's just as long as our economy is fine, we're, we're not bothered. And the American family is falling apart. Teenagers all the way to elderly people living in places like Sun City are living immorally. We're killing our offspring while yet in the womb. We're affirming things that God calls an abomination. We have people who are serving in the highest offices of the land who are not people of integrity because we've forgotten God. Secondly, do not pick on the loss of this world and miss your own need to repent. You see, the temptation when we see all the wicked ways of lost people is we say, yeah, God, those pagans, get them. 
And Jesus said, don't point fingers at men like Pilate who took innocent Galileans and then mixed their blood in a sacrifice. Because while Pilate is a sinner and while Putin is a sinner, unless we repent, we too will perish. Does God love Putin? Yes. Would God want President Putin to be saved? Yes. And we need to be careful too, though Putin threw out all the evangelical missionaries, and there are no evangelical missionaries in Russia now. I hope you know that. Stopped over five years ago. All the visas were never renewed. But I remember doing a conference in Lviv with pastors from all over Ukraine and all over Russia. Men who passionately love Jesus. We need to pray for the church in both nations. Got all the conscripts right now fighting, but when those Chetsnians come in in the next few days, it's going to be a different world. But we are to be compassionate. We are not to see the lost people of this world as the enemy. Someone cared enough about you to share Christ. You say, I'm not as vicious as a Ninevite. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. We're all equally in need of a Savior. And if we have been saved, we have been commissioned to go and to share it. Now, Father, we love you and we thank you for incredible grace. You had no debts to pay except the wrath our sin deserves. And yet you reached down into human history by sending your son to die and bleed and to become the object of the wrath that we deserved. All we can do is say thank you and worship you. Now you have given us the privilege and the commission to take this message of forgiveness and new life to a lost world. So help us to do that. Help us never to think of ourselves as superior for the ground we know is level at the cross. Some of us can't remember the last time we even attempted to share the plan of salvation. Forgive us for our disobedience. And let today be the first day of the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.